welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. Joy to be with you here today. I, I said it was strange walking in and seeing Dad here. That was a that was a great experience. I was glad to have them back for many reasons, not just for babysitting privileges, but uh, <laughs> but for many reasons. Um, if you would again, please turn to Genesis chapter twenty. Genesis chapter twenty. We've spent several weeks camped out in Sodom and Gomorrah. First, hearing about. Abraham's intercessory prayer for the city for the sake of his nephew Lot. And then we also studied the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and what that means for really for for the history of humanity and how this is an example of God's destruction of those who are in rebellion to God. And then we finally finished with Lot's sad end to his story um, in the cave. But today we move on from Sodom. In chapter 20, It implies that Abram almost immediately breaks camp and moves south, moves away from the Oaks of Mamre where he has been camped out, where he's been living for at least 15 years, if not longer. So he's been here a long time. This has really been um, somewhat of a home for him in the Promised Land. Abraham Abraham has friends here. Um, He has these allies. One of them is Mamre, and then there's Eshkol and, and Aner. These men who ambushed the kings from the north with him. So these are strong and faithful allies. This is, a, this is a place of safety. It's been somewhat of a home. But for some unspecific or unspecified reason, Abraham breaks up camp and moves south. Most likely, he's just seen the flames coming up from Sodom and Gomorrah, from that region. He can probably smell the smoke from where he's at And he probably wants to get as far away from the cities and from the smell of the smoke of the place burning where he assumes that Lot also died. We have no reason to believe that Abraham knows that God spared Lot at this time. It sounds more like he immediately breaks camp and leaves when he sees the smoke rising from Sodom and Gomorrah. He now goes far to the south and wanders through the wilderness near Canaan, um, near, near Canaan's southern border with Egypt for a short while. So he really runs all the way up against Egypt to the south. But then, most likely finding this area a, de- a, de- a desert place, a desolate place, he turns back to the north and finally settles near Gerar, which is a Philistine city in Canaan. It's to the southwest of Canaan. And Abraham now finds himself in another situation where he is a stranger and a pilgrim, an outsider surrounded by enemies. It's been a while since he's been in this situation, at least 15 years since he has felt this, but now he's back in this situation. And just like us, Abraham begins to think of ways to ensure his own safety from the terrifying dangers around him, from his enemies that surround him. Abraham begins to focus his attention on all the enemies around him who were against him, and he begins to forget about the one who is for him. With this in mind, let's pick up the story here in Genesis. We're going to begin in verse 1 and read through 
Um, Genesis chapter 20, verse 1 through 18. Verse 1 says, From there, from the oaks of Mamre, Abram journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. So that's what I just summed up for you. Then verse 2, And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands I have done this. Then God said to him in, a, in, a, in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very, were, were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought... There is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abram and returned Sarah to his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and, and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us humility to come before your word, that you would calm our hearts from all the troubles that were in this past week that are still stirred up in our hearts, and that you'd also calm our hearts from all the fears we have for the week to come. Lord, we are, we are fragile beings and so quick to forget your power and your goodness. I pray that this morning, in this moment, that we would be reminded once again of who you are, and who we are to you. We are, we are of great worth because of what you have made us, what you have declared about us, what you have chosen to make us. I thank you for that, Lord, and I pray that this morning we would be reminded of that once more. In Jesus' name, amen. Now some of you are probably thinking, didn't we already study this passage before? Because it is so similar to an earlier episode in Abraham's life. Almost as soon as he enters Canaan, so this is looking back now, almost as soon as he enters Canaan, following God's command, there is a famine in Genesis 12, 
And Abram heads down to Egypt to escape the famine. And at that time, Pharaoh is the one who takes Sarah because of her incredible beauty. I mean, at that same time, he told the same lie. And Pharaoh is the one who comes and takes Sarah. But our passage today occurs roughly 25 years later. So 25 years have passed. Abram has walked with God for 25 years. But after all that time, we are straight back where we started because Abraham fears for his own life while living amongst his enemies or amongst pagans. So we're back in this situation because Abraham and Sarah tell the same old lie again. They tell the lie that she is my sister, and she affirms it by saying, yes, he's my brother. We find out in this passage that this is apparently what they have done in every place that they had visited. Initially telling their more powerful neighbors that Sarah is only the sister of Abraham, not his wife. And we studied the reasons for this before, so I don't want to spend too much time on this, but briefly, the pagan peoples that Abraham was sojourning through their lands they were known for killing foreigners and taking the foreign men's wives for themselves. But if you were only the brother of a beautiful woman who's not married, if you were only the brother and the, the head of the household, then you were much more likely to be allowed to live. And on top of that, you may actually even receive the bride price for your sister. So this is where this lie comes from. It is, a, it is cleverness on the part of Abraham. Because Abraham is aware of the Canaanite practices, and he surely hears the terrible stories that, are, that, that passing travelers tell about the, the offenses of these Canaanite kings. I mean, he knows what's happening all around him. We only have to think for a moment about what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, this, this very similar type society, we studied all about what's going on there. So now we can see what, what Abraham is afraid of. He's afraid of this happening to him and to his family. From a human perspective, Abraham had every reason to be afraid. He is a pilgrim and a stranger wandering through the lands of powerful kings who do what they want and take whatever they want without question. But from the perspective of the promises that God had given, was there any reason for Abraham to be afraid? Remember, only a couple weeks before this scene, God appeared to Abraham and promised him that in 12 months, Sarah would give birth to a son named Isaac. If you think about the words of God, that Abraham and Sarah were going to have a son in 12 months. If you think about those words, then God had indirectly promised Abraham that he would not die until Sarah conceived Isaac. God had already promised to protect Abraham's life until he had a son through Sarah. With the promises of God in mind, we see that Abraham was afraid of something that God promised would not happen. Abraham was anxious and afraid about things that could not happen harm him. I do not make this point to make fun of Abraham, but instead the point is that all too often believers are tempted to forget the promises of God when this life comes at us, when it threatens us. We are tempted to live as people who do not have any promises. That's how Christians are tempted to live. 
I don't think Abraham literally forgot the words of God about what he promised about Isaac. I don't think he forgot the words or the when, when God appeared to him. That's not what he forgot. What I mean is that when this life threatened Abraham, Abraham stopped living like he believed the promises. He stopped acting and thinking like someone who truly believed the promises. For that, in that moment of danger, I can imagine King Abimelech, now this is my imagination, it's not in the text, but I can imagine the king, King Abimelech and his soldiers riding up to Abraham's camp. Maybe they were going on, on patrol or something, but they ride up to the camp demanding to know who, who Abraham is and why they are in Gerar. Why are you in my land? And in that moment of danger, Abraham responds as if he doesn't truly believe the promise of God. Abraham responds as if his own cleverness is the only thing between him and death in that moment of danger. Abraham lies to protect himself from something that could not harm him. It's easy to look at the life of of Abraham and be like, man, God had already promised you you weren't going to die. What are you afraid of? But what anxieties and fears are you carrying this morning what things if they were in danger would cause you to lie cheat or steal or maybe even doubt the purpose of life itself possibly the loss of wealth for some people or possessions maybe it's a dear relationship being taken away or the respect of your peers your position in the community for many it's health when our, when we when we feel our bodies breaking That is when these doubts come. It could be a position of authority at a job, or maybe just simply the loss of control over your life when you start to feel your your life like slipping out of your control. When circumstances, circumstances threaten these things in my life, it feels like a battering ram is crashing against the door of my soul, attempting to break in and rob me of the inner peace I have in Jesus Christ, my Lord. It's like a battering ram attempting to break down the door and rob me of peace. And I can only assume that the loss of things like these also challenge your peace as well. Challenge the hope that is in you. But God wants more for us and more from us. Our joy in God and our worship of God is not complete until we completely trust in Him. Whether we lose wealth, possessions, relationships, or control, God wants us to look to the promises He has given us and live as if we believe His promises to the very end. So you might be wondering, what promises has God given to Christians, to all of us, His church, those who, who love God and are seeking to live for Him? What promises has God given us? Well, there are many promises in the Scriptures, but just to list a few to give us an idea of where God's promises are headed. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, while speaking about people's anxiety about having enough food and clothing, this is what Jesus says. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He will provide our needs if we're seeking first the kingdom of God. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3-4, through we're promised comfort 
if we trust in God. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. That's a promise from God. In John 14, verse 16, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will be our helper always. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. In Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus promises us that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he, that Jesus, will personally be with us at every point in our life, saying, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, Jesus is with us. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, Paul is pleading with God to take away a physical weakness he has. Paul is pleading with God, not just because it's painful, but because it's actually hindering Paul's ability to minister the gospel, to spread the gospel. There's many times in Paul's life where he was bedridden. Think about when he, was, he evangelized the Galatians, the churches in Galatia. It was because of a bodily illness that he was, he was there. He's probably bedridden. And he's pleading with God, take this away from me so I can serve you better. But Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That is a promise of God, not just to Paul. Because Paul is going to go on and make this very clear that this is to be applied to every believer who loves God and is seeking for God to be with them. He makes this application in the next phrase. He says, because the grace is sufficient, because Christ's grace is sufficient for me, because God's Christ's power is made perfect in my weakness, because of this, he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. This is the promise of God that when we find ourselves at our weakest, but our eyes are looking to God for His strength, when we are at our weakness, that is when we will experience the power of Christ in us and through us in its greatest degree, and when others will be able to see it to its greatest degree as well. In Romans 8, verse 17 through 18, we are told that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him. And Paul goes on to say, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Another promise from God. So what we've seen in just a few passages is that if we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then God will supply our physical needs in this life. We've also seen that if we look to God in trials, then the Father of mercies will comfort us. The Holy Spirit will help us. And the Son's grace will be sufficient for us. Also, 
If we accept our weaknesses and give praise to God in the midst of our weakness, then the power of Christ will rest upon us and we will be made strong in that moment. And finally, if we are the children of God, then the sufferings of this age are nothing compared to the glory, joy, happiness, warmth, friendship, pleasure, peace that will be revealed to us when we are finally welcomed into the kingdom of God. These are just some of the promises that we are given as the church, as Christians. And with such awe-inspiring promises, how could we ever live in fear? How could we ever become great anxious? How could we ever lie, cheat, or steal in order to ensure our own preservation? I mean, if we truly believed these things, if they, were, if they had sunk down deep into our hearts and minds to where we believed and were living this way, why would we ever grumble or even complain? I suggest you, to you that we, that you and I, respond in these ways to the trials of life when we forget or doubt the promises of God. When our problems are big and God is small, that's when the promises of God begin to feel insufficient to handle the giant-sized problems in my life. When our problems are big and God is small in our minds. I believe this is what happened to Abraham. Even though he believed the promises of God, he would sometimes be distracted by a giant problem that stepped into his life. Like this problem of being murdered for the sake of Sarah, his wife. So looking back at the narrative, Abraham is in danger. He and Sarah tell the same old lie that worked so well last time. And King Abimelech takes Sarah and adds her to his harem. That's where we're at in the story. In only two verses, the family of promise is in a royal mess again. But then, just as suddenly, the story turns back around with the phrase in verse 3, But God. But God. So many times in the scriptures, the phrase, But God, introduces our God as the Savior of His people. The one who protects us from being overwhelmed by the world. And the one who spares us from being destroyed by our own sins. And this story is no different. In verse 3 we, we read, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. Can you feel God's care for Abraham and Sarah with these words? Can you sense the impossibility of God's promises falling to the ground? Abimelech had stepped in between God and his promises being fulfilled. And God comes and says, you are a dead man. That is our God. Remember, God had promised that Abraham and Sarah would have a son named Isaac in roughly 10 months from this scene. But Abraham has made a mess of things. And is most likely sitting at home by himself, unable to sleep, battling to understand how it could even be possible for God to fulfill his promises now. But meanwhile, on the other side of town, in the, in the palace, Abimelech is fast asleep in his king-size bed. But now, he's having a divine encounter with Yahweh. And as this pagan king hears God's words, he has no doubts about the reality that this God will keep his promises. 
God promises Abimelech in verse 7, If you do not return Sarah, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. And we know that Abimelech took him seriously, took God seriously because of the way he responds the very next morning. Do you see the contrast? Abraham, a prophet, priest, king of God, is still struggling to trust in God completely, while Abimelech is utterly convinced that this God keeps His promises and will fulfill it. Can you feel the foolishness of doubting God's ability to preserve our lives and keep His promises to the very end? To preserve our lives as long as He says it will be so. In Genesis 20, God is revealing His providence to his people. You may ask, what does providence mean? The word providence comes from the word provide, which means to supply what is needed. In scripture, we often see this command in one area I preach through in uh, the New Testament, where husbands are commanded to, by God to provide for their own households, which means to see the need of your household and to provide for the need, to to meet the need, to see the need and to meet the needs. Godly husbands provide for their families. But when we speak of God's provision, we must realize that it is unique because God doesn't just see the needs of one person at one moment at a time. No, God is always at all times seeing the needs of the universe and is sustaining them by his governance. From the movement of the galaxies to to a single strand of hair that falls from your head, God provides. Or more literally, God sees to it. That's what this word means in the original language. God sees to it. This is the providence of God. Not just that God sees all things, but that God sees and is acting in all things. We've studied previously the providence of God and His control over the clouds, rain, floods, famines, and even nice sunny days. Jesus says that His Father shines the sun on both the evil and the good. The natural world is not a clock that God wound up and then stepped back from, removing Himself from its activity. That's not what the Scriptures reveal. This world, this natural world is not a clock that just ticks on its own. And God is not simply invested in this world at certain points in history, like when he saw everything going wicked in the days of Noah, and he says, I'm going to step into history and the flood and destroy everything. This is not how God is operating. This is not how the scriptures reveal our God. He's not simply invested at certain unique moments in time. No, God sees all things and is acting in every situation and at all times. We've also studied how the actions of men are not beyond the providence of God. We studied in Genesis 12 how God protected Sarah from Pharaoh and caused Pharaoh to gift Abraham great wealth even though Abraham deserved to die in that story. He had lied to the king of the land, to Pharaoh. He deserved to die. But he leaves Egypt having plundered them and blessed by God. We briefly looked at Proverbs 21, 
verse 1. It says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The point of that verse is not to say that, that, that God is somehow only interacting with kings. The point of that verse is to say that if God turns the hearts of kings and emperors to do his will, the men who appear to have ultimate freedom, often with zero human accountability or restraint, if God turns even the hearts of kings to do his will, then no man is outside God's providence. His moment by moment, seeing and acting to accomplish his will. That's the point of Proverbs 21. That was clear in Genesis 12 and in Proverbs 21. And today's passage is no different. In Genesis 20, verse 6, God says to Abimelech in the dream, It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God prevented King Abimelech from violating Sarah, even though she was his newest concubine. And this is not a once in all of creation incident. God is restraining acts of evil every day, all the time. I don't think it's necessary for me to belabor this point because we've already seen that God restrains even the devil. The devil is a lion on a leash that can only go as far as God permits. We've already seen that clearly demonstrated in the life of Job, where Satan must ask God permission to afflict Job. And then we've also seen in the life of Peter, where Satan had to ask God permission to sift Peter like wheat. We also know that God restrains the wickedness in human society because Romans 1 tells us there are times when God, in an act of judgment, has removed his restraining hand and has permitted societies to fully pursue their own perverted desires. That's Romans 1 verse 28. God restrains both the acts of demons and humans according to the purpose of his will. So so what's the point? The point is that Genesis 20 is highlighting the foolishness of doubting God and is demonstrating the power and wisdom of God to work all things for his glory and for the ultimate good of his people. You may be thinking, Okay, I've got it, Dan. God is powerful and God is able to work things out all right for me if he wants to. But that really isn't the point. The point isn't that God can work things out for a Christian's good. That's not the point. The point is that God is working all things for your good because God is for you. Let's look at a New Testament explanation of this in order to help us see the full picture of God's love for his people. In Romans 8, Paul is attempting to raise the Roman Christians' eyes to to heaven so they get a heavenly vision of what God is doing for his people, for his children. He's trying Paul Paul is trying to help the Romans Uh, to see that God has promised Christians every good thing in Christ Jesus our Lord. He tells us that we have life, freedom, adoption, and we also have a heavenly family, 
a heavenly home and a glorified body that's promised to us. But then in verses 28 through 39, Paul goes even further to emphasize the love of God for his people. And he does this because he knows that we doubt the love of God for us. And we doubt that he could truly work my life circumstances for good. But listen to these words, which are the words of God to the people he loves. Romans 8, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now we're going to break down each one of these verses and go slowly through it. But first, in in verse 28, simply put, God works all things for the good of his people. The people he called, which are the people who now love him. Now, the next verse is going to explain how God works all things for good for these people. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, that sounds like a complicated verse, but let's look at each word individually. First, God foreknew which means that before the world began, God personally and relationally knew everyone whom he would one day rescue from their sins. Now, this is not a distant awareness of these people's existence or our existence, but instead is God choosing to enter into the deepest of relationships with his people. Now, why would I say that? Well, the scriptures often The scriptures often use this word know, the word to know, in this type of context to describe the choice to enter into the most personal of relationships. For instance, when the scripture says things like, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. When when we read that verse, we realize that the scriptures are talking about the choice to enter into the most the the deepest of relationships, the relationship that only can be experienced between a a man and his wife. So in this context, I am arguing and I am convinced that the scriptures mean that God is choosing to enter into a deep abiding relationship. The verse goes on to say that these same people whom God foreknew, God also predestined which means to predecide their destination. Predecide their destination. He decided where these people would end up. God predecided that his people, the verse goes on to say, would be conformed or made similar to the image of his son. We would shed the image of Adam and we would put on the image of Christ. Why did God decide to do this? It goes on to say, so that the son might be the firstborn among many brothers, which emphasizes our acceptance into God's family as heirs. We're brothers, but it also emphasizes Christ's exalted position above us. That's what firstborn is emphasizing. It's not talking about giving birth physically 
What it's talking about is the preeminence of Christ. Christ rules as the exalted king over his people whom God has given him. Verse 30 continues the chain of events. And those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's break this down. Looking back over the last few verses, it says that God foreknew his people personally. And God predecided to make his people into the likeness of his son. This all happened before the world was created. But then, in our lifetime, God called us to himself. This is when his people first taste and see that the Lord is good, and we respond with faith. Then, the called ones are justified, which means to be forgiven our sins and declared righteous. Just like Abraham was declared righteous all those years before. And finally... Those whom God justified, he also glorified. Glorified means to be changed into the likeness of the risen Jesus Christ. Paul has just explained the purpose of God for his people from before the world began. And he has shown us step by step how God brings this about. And then With all of this in mind, he makes this conclusion, which is the exact same conclusion that we are supposed to draw from Genesis 20. Paul asks this question in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Here's the answer. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God has given us the most precious thing in heaven. Why would he withhold anything else? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He's talking about God's people. Who can bring any charge against us? Verse 33, he answers, it is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul is saying that no one, not even Satan, can bring an accusation of guilt against us before God's throne. Because God is the one who has declared us righteous And Jesus is the living proof on the Father's right-hand side. Jesus is the living proof that our death penalty has already been paid. Paul goes on in verse 35. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's saying, yes, these physical bodies may be beaten and killed, but can that truly harm us? Could these seemingly giant problems in our life ever separate us from the love of Christ? Paul answers his own question in verse 37. No, 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor in powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, do not live in fear of the giant problems of life. Nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand. If the love of God abides in your heart, then you can rejoice in the knowledge that God has known you personally from before the creation of the world. And if God is for you and has been for you since before the creation of the world, if that is true, then who can be against you? No one can hinder the will of God Almighty to glorify you. No one can hinder His will to change you into the likeness of His Son. Not Pharaoh, not Abimelech, not even Satan himself accusing you in the throne room of heaven. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray.